0: This is the Small Moves Podcast with your host, Jason Hertzberger, episode 68. You know, Bill Lee once said, The other day they asked me about mandatory drug testing. I said, I believed in drug testing a long time ago. All through the 60s, I tested everything. That comment is oddly appropriate for today's conversation.
1: You're listening to the Small Moves Podcast. Small steps for big progress with your host, Jason Hertzberger. Your next step starts now.
0: Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of the show. I'm really glad that you're here. Today, I'm interviewing Mike Gimble. Mike is a substance abuse consultant and counselor and an expert on this topic going back decades. He is a really interesting dude with a hell of a backstory. We get into his background in using alcohol and various other substances, uh, starting back in the 60s, all the way through for the following couple of decades, while he was involved with a California-based substance abuse recovery program that later became a substance abuse-based cult that ended up getting broken up back in 1991 due to various illegal activities, some of which got Pretty extreme. Uh, We'll get into some of the details about that in the interview. This one ran pretty long north of two hours. So what I'm actually doing is I'm breaking this interview up to two episodes. This is the first part of that episode. Today and the f- second part of it, I'm going to be releasing next Tuesday. So that will be episode 70. This will be episode 68 and 70 will be the first and second part of this interview with Mike Gimble. He is a really interesting guy. He's got a really great take on the show, and I'm really glad that I was able to get him on here. He's got just a mountain of experience in all aspects of the. The situation that we're dealing with in this country now with regards to substance abuse, both on the using end, on on almost every type of uh, product available when he was partaking, shall we say, all the way up through what he's basically been doing these last several decades, which is counseling both adults and children, about the dangers of these substances, and he has held some pretty impressive positions and has done a lot of really fascinating work in that area. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. With that, I bring you Mike Gimbel, Part 1. Here we go.
1: Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to the Small Moves Podcast, small steps for big progress. Let's prepare to ignite.
0: Hey, Mike. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Ah, it's a pleasure. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, no worries. Now, the, the audience heard a little bit about your background that I was familiar with when you know, when I first got connected. But obviously, you're far more familiar with your own <laughs> past than I am. So, why, why don't you just tell the audience? All right.
1: Well, about you know, I, um, I'm a very, very lucky man okay. to be alive. You know, we talk about the heroin epidemic. I got involved with heroin Back in the late 60s, early 70s. Early days. You know, so I grew up in a nice middle-class Jewish family who was moving to the suburbs, yeah. much like a Barry Levinson movie. Exactly like a Barry Levinson movie. And we moved out in the suburbs and uh, started hanging out. And uh, when I was probably seventh grade or so, started drinking Back then, we were drinking Thunderbird wine, which, oh my God. which you could run your car on right now if you had to. Uh, very, very cheap wine. And, uh, you know, the whole idea was everyone wanted to get drunk and go to the swim club. And, you know, it was a big alcohol thing going on. And people would get drunk and act like idiots. And I, I was very uh, shy and I wanted to fit in. I love playing sports. I played baseball, played basketball, and I loved it. And I, so I gravitated to a lot of the athletes and they were pretty wild out there because it was a mixture of Jewish families moving in and non-Jew. I mean, it was just a crazy time for a lot of people moving out into the suburbs Sure, yeah, in that mid sixties. And so after a while, uh, all of a sudden drugs started coming into the suburbs. Uh, marijuana and, and LSD and speed and things that, you know, we didn't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I go out and speak a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. And I tell people that my drug education was literally all of us going into our parents' medicine cabinet and getting bottles of pills and taking a few. Mm-hmm. And we'd meet behind Old Court Middle School over in Randallstown. Oh and we'd hang out mm-hmm. there before the dance and we look at these pills and we'd start taking them. Oh my gosh. And if you got uh, diarrhea, we knew you got a laxative and we didn't <laughs> want that. And if somebody started running around the football field, we knew he got speed. Straight. and Somebody <laughs> fell asleep, we knew he got a sleeping pill. This is honest to God, true. Oh
0: my and when God. you think about the that's
1: names crazy. of drugs back then, I mean, they were called reds, blues. yeah, Travers. Travers. yeah. Because that's how, that's how we learned what they were. We didn't know they sure. were two and alls or... You know, second all, I'm, it, we went by the color. Yeah. And so that was our drug education.
0: Whereas today, almost every pill is white. It's like white with maybe a different serial number. Or totally different. It. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, I started to smoke pot and started to take some pills and started to to do some things. And what what I found was that these athletes were way more aggressive. Mm-hmm. They could they could go out with... They could, you know, dance better, mm-hmm. hang out with girls better. Aggressive in the I was way. like totally yeah. shy. Yeah. I mean, they were outgoing and I was a, a shy kid. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I realized that when I got drunk and when I got high, that was my equalizer. That was you. Yeah. I could be an idiot, you know, <laughs> and, and I could act out a way that I didn't think I could on my own. Sure. So boy, psychologically, I probably got addicted to drugs the first time I got drunk because I never looked back. Yeah. And so here I was seventh grade, eighth grade, you know, working my way up and eventually just started doing every drug that was out there. And I, I always say my friends went varsity in sports and I went varsity in drugs. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was like my, my new image.
0: Yeah. Now what is, is it around this time when you, when you first were, um, had any interaction with opiates of any kind? Not or? yet. That was, okay. you
1: know, this, uh, when I'm, it's working my way up to the eighth, ninth, 10th, you know, just. Sure. By the 11th grade, I was just a total burnout. Yeah. I mean, I was messed up every day. I don't think I went to school sober, straight. One day starting in the, probably the 11th grade, I was just and, and now I had an image. Because so, drug, because now, because now we're here. We are nineteen sixty eight. Mm-hmm. You know the whole war movement, yep. drugs, the hippie movement. I mean, things were happening, which
0: absolutely encouraged us. Right, right. things were places. happening
1: yeah, sure. that was supporting drug use back then. It was the first time you saw that. Sure. And so the summer of the eleventh grade, uh, we I went to Ocean City, mm-hmm. and that's where I got introduced to heroin for okay. the first time. And that's... like most people, that do heroin for the first time. It makes you sick. You vomit, mm. and it's not a great experience. I was gonna
0: say, it sounds awesome. But <laughs> there's
1: something about it that makes you want to do it again. Mm. And I did it again, and again, and again, and again, and and got to the point where I under, you know, understood that feeling. And it was kind of a heroin is kind of a feeling of being conscious and unconscious at the same time. Mm. You're not passed out. Yeah. It's like kind but of you're in of this middle place. Sort of a lucid dream sort of yeah, a state. Very just, dreamy, yeah. Very dreamy, very mellow, very calming. And it's unlike any drug that I'd taken. And at this point I'd taken every drug. Everything available. There wasn't anything that, that was out there that I didn't try. Sure. Up, up to this point. Including smoking banana peels. You know, which <laughs> someone had told us you got high and we tried it. Sure, it was like, what the hell? Why sure. not? <laughs> <laughs> didn't matter. We tried everything. And so now all of a sudden, I go into my senior year That's after funny. spending the summer doing heroin. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't understand addiction. No one's teaching us like sure. they are today in school. And I start going to my senior year. Mm-hmm. And I'm like going to school mm-hmm. in the morning like a good little boy. Yeah. And then by around noon, I would leave and I would rob houses in the in the neighborhood. I would shoplift at You know, the department stores, Uh, I would start to sell drugs because now I needed money because here I was, a white kid, Mm -hmm. buying heroin in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. You can't buy heroin if you're a white kid in Baltimore. You need a black connection to buy it for you. And this is in the 60s? This is
0: in the 60s? 69. 68,
1: 69. Okay. So, I mean, you had to have a connection back then. Mm -hmm. And it was a black connection and you had to buy him his drugs. So I don't. Not only needed money for my dope, I needed money for his dope. So I had to go out and hustle, even more. Okay. And then I would do this every day at school. I would leave, get money, go downtown, get my dope, come back. And one day I couldn't go. Mm. Something at school. Something. And all of a sudden I felt horrible. I was like I had the flu, and I was, my bones were. I was achy, and my nose was running, and I felt miserable. And I said to a friend of mine, I said, God. I got the flu. He goes, no, you're not. He said, you're hooked on heroin. I said, what? what? No, I, didn't know yeah. it, I didn't know anything about withdrawal and going. For, yeah. I said, no way. He said, yeah. And so when I went out and got my heroin, for the first time, when I shot up the heroin, I didn't get high. I just got straight. It got rid of the pains and the aches.
0: It brought you back to got
1: dorm. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't in pain, but I wasn't high. Mm-hmm. So now I said, mm, I want to get high. Now so now I gotta go back out and that and get money. And that was my life for my entire senior year of high school. That was what I did because okay. now I was hooked. Yeah, I mean I was addicted my whole senior. I mean I had to go, mm-hmm. I had to hustle, I had to get the money. And now my addiction is getting higher and higher and more costly and costing more money. Meaning I gotta rob and steal and hustle more and more and more and uh it was just the life sure. and so at the same time everyone at school knew what I, that i was like the only junkie and, you know back then we had a big big class they had like 1500 people in our graduating class mm-hmm. and where and were you going to school at the time milford mill high school okay and i was like the junkie and mm-hmm. it was but it was cool you were the one yeah you were the guy because yeah. everybody else at that point now was smoking weed Right, they had moved up to weed, but I But I'm like, like, ah, but boy, I'm like a junkie boy. now, right? Because that's my image. So I was the cool. I was actually a cool guy because I was a junkie. They didn't know, and so it came time. Well, for, nobody did at the time. And yeah. so I started going out with the queen of the school, the head cheerleader, the lead in the play, right? And I'm the junkie. So it's like the queen and the junkie. And so we started going out, and then it was senior prom, right? And I remember telling my my parents, you know, they're all excited. Going to the prom, and my dad had a new car. He gives me a car to use. Gives me all this money to go to the prom, and I'm like, money, yo. It's like I was like, gonna say, yeah. that money's not going to my date. That money's <laughs> going to my arm. Yeah. And so I remember, you know, taking going to the prom and shooting up at the prom, and uh, and then afterwards we went to Ocean City, and I thought this is how crazy I was, mm-hmm. out of it. First of all, my date to the prom. Was a very famous person in Baltimore. Okay, she was a disc jockey on 98 Rock for 35 years. Oh wow, Sarah Fleischer. Everybody, oh, wow. everybody okay. in town knows Sarah Fleischer. Yeah, that's and fun. they also know she was my date because we did a TV story a few years ago, and she was on it and admitted it because I have I have video of her coming to my house, of me picking her up, and me giving her a necklace of my parents and. Meanwhile, well, I'm a junkie, yeah. so I've got these videos <laughs> that we use. So, so I thought, I, so I take Sarah Fleischer to the prom, and I go, and then I end up shooting up at the prom, and for years, probably thirty years, mm-hmm. I thought I took her home, and we had a miserable time. And I saw her recently. And she goes, "Oh no, we had a great time. Went to Ocean <laughs> City." I didn't even remember. But it. but you didn't even you. you I have no idea. I don't Jesus. remember any of it. I don't remember any of that stuff. But after we graduated, then. I was full-time, mm-hmm. just, just you know, hooking up, hustling, mm-hmm. dealing drugs. And now bad things started really happening. I started getting busted. Okay. I got busted, you know, with like 50 bags of heroin. I got busted on North Avenue in Baltimore on a Saturday night at 2 in the morning. And the cops pulled me over and says, is are that, you crazy? He's like,
0: what you doing here, I, son? I a yeah. white
1: kid on North Avenue. You don't think we're going to stop you? Yeah. <laughs> it's like... You know, but I got really deep at that it was point. like Is that you're either the kingpin of the block or you're a junkie? Yeah. Like, there's
0: no other reason. Either for me way, to be you're there. We're,
1: yeah. you're 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 getting yeah. stopped. Yeah. So I started getting busted, and then I started. I moved in with a black family mm-hmm. on Drew Hill Avenue. Okay. And I became like their connection. I became the connection to the white, Pikesville, Randallstown, this whole area. Mm-hmm. So I was selling all their drugs out here, so I could keep myself in drugs. But I was like. That summer I was, I was living with their family, mm-hmm. you know, right in the middle of Druid Hill and, you know, just living the life, the yeah. culture and, you know, and then hustling the, the money out in uh, Pikesville. Like, this is the seventy, like early 70s? This, this is not quite 70 yet. Okay. Because this was still 69, just graduated high school okay, in 1969. Right. And so now it's getting worse and now, you know, I'm just hustling and banging, you uh, uh, bad prescriptions, and uh, eventually it just got so out of control at that point that, you know, my family again, a nice Jewish family. Mm-hmm. I'm the youngest of four. Mm-hmm. All my brothers were, you know, wonderful, and here, and my parents think you Here's know, the, yeah, I'm yeah. wonderful too because I'm a Jewish kid, and my kid can't do anything wrong. And mm-hmm. eventually, when I would get busted, I would just make up stories. It wasn't me. i was holding it for a friend. It was. And I got away with that for a while until one day my dad came home from work unexpectedly and caught me shooting up in the bathroom. Mm. And that's when it was like reality set in of sure. what, what was going on. And at that point, I just kind of like ran away mm. and started living on the streets, hustling around, living in different places. And, you know, that was a life for the next couple of years Mm -hmm. living that way and moving into places and back then it was okay because that's kind of the hippie way sure yeah that was the hippie way plus i had great connections for drugs so people were always giving me money they people were always needing me more than i needed them because all i needed at that point was heroin Mm -hmm. and so uh i went to a doctor back then methadone which was the first synthetic drug that came out to try to deal with heroin addiction yeah okay and so back then there were methadone programs private doctors were opening illegal methadone clinics in washington dc and baltimore you could get on five programs and they would give you methadone. And methadone was almost as good as heroin. Yeah, because it's my understanding of methadone is it is
0: it is an opiate. It's just a... It's a synthetic. It's a synthetic. Yeah. Right.
1: It's a synthetic opiate yeah. that was made... Basically, it came out in World War II mm-hmm. when the soldiers came back from, war, from the war injured and...
0: They were pumped up with morphine. They would the give them morphine so and out this out.
1: is a yeah. way of dealing with morphine. Then the Vietnam War hit. And now they, these guys were really doing heroin. So methadone got bigger dealing with the Vietnam vets yeah. because they were coming back hooked on heroin. So methadone, which, which is a horrible drug, mm. it just eats away at your bones, eats away at your body, and it was just miserable. And so being on methadone was, for me it wasn't to get off of heroin, it was just to have something cheaper. And so I didn't have to hustle as much. But you could get methadone everywhere back then, in the Baltimore and Washington. And cough syrup was real big back then because that was also an opiate because that was coding. So we have a saying that and AC was what you got. Mm-hmm. And there were doctors, in, two doctors in Washington that literally you went there, and one, you got all the methadone you want. It's This true, true story. This guy, his name was Dr. Moore, who, No matter how much money you had, you went there and there were lines of people out on 14th Street in in Northwest Washington, lines of people to his house, like a movie theater. And you went in, I don't care how much money, if you had $10, $100, $1,000. You went in, here he was, sat at his desk. He had two armed guards with with machine guns on each side of him, two canines, and he was sitting there. Hell, can I help you? He so, said, Yeah, you know, I'm really, you um, know, I'm trying to get off heroin. I need methadone. Okay. And literally, when you said, I've got $100, he would turn around and they were snowball pumps, like a snowball stand. He would get the $100 bottle and oh fill it up with methadone God. and then give you a prescription for Quaaludes. <laughs> now, many people today it's not have heard thing. of yeah. Quaaludes. Yeah, they've,
0: they've seen them in movies. They've seen they... them
1: in movies, but Quaaludes is probably the only drug. That no one will ever say anything bad about.
0: Okay. Why is that? Why is that? <laughs>
1: because being high on quaaludes was just the ultimate of all highs. I mean, really, it was just unbelievable high. But it wasn't so, an opiate. What, 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 what it was, was a, called a synthetic. Uh, a, it was a hypnotic drug, uh, but it was also like a painkiller.
0: Okay. So okay. it wasn't say, it knocked, per se a psychedelic. It wasn't. It was a mix. Okay. You know,
1: it, it was kind of a psychedelic because you know, but not like an LSD. Sure, it's not like a MDMA but it was or uh, a
0: DMT yeah. or whatever. Yeah,
1: we, we we used to call it a disassociative anesthetic. Okay, it disassociated you from reality, but acted like an anesthetic. So, so Got you, it. I mean, so <laughs> you've seen the people have seen the movies. You know, Wall Street, and yep. there's a bunch. Yeah, of, the Wolf of Wall Street. Wolf was of big, Wall Street, was where, big where on the that, yeah. big Quaalude part. But you went there and, you, and he'd give you a prescription for Quaaludes and you went to the pharmacy that he owned <laughs> and you cashed that and then you could get bottles of Robitussin cough syrup over the counter. This is coding. Yeah, this is, yeah. is coding. Yeah. And you used to have to sign a book, a narcotic book. You know, and you look at the names and it would say Richard Nixon, Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse. (laughs) And you just made up a name. So now you leave Washington with a bottle of Robitussin, Quaaludes, and Methadone. And then the idea. So you're
0: good for. And and we would
1: say we'd go to to D.C. for A.C. (laughs) That was the slogan. And you'd look in Baltimore. You'd say, hey, anybody going to D.C. run? Anybody making a run? And so then you would drive back Mm. and see how far you could make it. I spent more time at College Park, not being a student. (laughs) Oh my God. At College Park, because I could never get further than College Park on the way home, be too high. And we would just crash out in College (laughs) Park. And so, you know, it was that, that was the weird stuff, because at the same time, the war movement was going on. Mm. So here I was at College Park a lot because of these watching them. So I started getting into the anti war movement. Sure. Mostly for the girls and, you know, because they were serious. Yeah. So I went to a. a Sadly, meeting. the
0: same reason why you see a lot of people mar- is like marching in protest. today. Oh, yeah, like a yeah. lot of the guys it's, today. They're it's like, a great oh, place. Uh, to,
1: it's a great way to get laid. You know, and, I, <laughs> and people know it. You know, so I, I, I decided. Me and my friend, we became like radicals. We said. Yeah, you know, we went to all the protests, mm-hmm. you know, at College Park. I mean, group yeah. one, we would sit there and, you know, they would burn the RTC building and we'd get tear gassed. And we thought we were real badasses, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> with the with the war movement. And we went to a Students for Democratic Society, SDS. Okay. That was like the Black Panther Party for yep. college kids. Okay. And we walked in, we're high as can be, and they looked at us and said, get the hell get out the of here. Get the fuck out of here. They, yeah. they were serious. Yeah. They were serious. We were just playing around. Yeah. But, yeah. I, but I for ended you, up was being right, was there like, at that like time when all the war stuff, I remember being in the middle of the the, the grounds of College Park where everyone was hanging out protesting mm-hmm. when we got word of the Kent State shootings, when the students got shot at Kent State. And I remember yep. being there for that. And it was just this a world of being in drugs, being out of drugs, being part of this movement, what that was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went down for my draft. I got my draft number, which was pretty low, so I knew I was going. You're going. Yeah. I'm going, and I went in. But luckily, I was a heroin addict. <laughs> luckily, <laughs> and I went in and I and I, I showed them my arms, you know, and and uh, I even have one. I actually have one scar left. Yeah. You know, when you when you scratch my scar, I can feel it in my toes. Still. It's amazing. You know, and I showed them my arms, and they go. Get back on the bus get in the
0: far- yeah get in the hell I out saying, here. Get, get, in-
1: get on the bus yeah. and so you know I was lucky I guess uh didn't have to go i don't, I don't know what I would have done if I had to go back yep. then, it was just crazy, crazy stuff, but it was a big deal so now and so now my life is still hustling, I'm just hustling, you know getting busted getting hustling. but my parents meanwhile keep bailing me out of jail mm-hmm. they keep paying for my lawyers. People would call and say, your son ripped me off for $1,000. They'd give him the money. I used to have my parents' home uh, ripped off all the time, you know, totally robbed. Uh, It was just, I mean, I took them broke. I literally, I mean, I took them broke. They ended up living in a shitty apartment for years because they had no money left of what they spent on me. And the the, the event that ended everything was uh, I ripped off. I pulled a $5,000 ripoff of, the back then we called them the Black Mafia. Mm. Today, they'd be the Black Gorilla family mm. in, in Baltimore. And I ripped them off for $5,000. Mm. Uh, I sold them on bad drugs. yeah. And I and I, my big plan was I'm going back home, take my money, buy drugs, and then go to California. Yeah, I was get running that, away. Just get this is my there. big break. Yeah. My $5,000. Mm. And so... I'm in the... um, Which
0: wasn't nothing in the 70s. I mean... Hey, that
1: was a big deal. You had a whole suitcase full of money. Are you kidding me?
0: Yeah, sure. And
1: I had my 1962 Valiant that I was going to take across (laughs) the country. And I went went to the house, I was living with my parents, and I said, you know, I'm going, I'm ready to go. I talked to a friend on the phone. I said, I'll see you later, see you later. He goes, man, are you sure you want to go? And I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is your dad? No, no, it's just somebody on the phone. Oh, okay. My parents weren't home. Okay. I hung the phone up. As soon as I hung it up, it rings again. So I know it's my friend trying to convince me not to go. Mm-hmm. I pick up the phone this time saying, you know, I'll, I'll give him one more shot to talk to him. And 10 seconds into the phone call, I hear an explosion. Like a bomb went off. Mm-hmm. And I look out and I go, shit, they blew up my goddamn car. <laughs> they put a Molotov cocktail in my car right? This car's burning. We're talking about being in a really nice neighborhood out in Randallstown. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And now this car's burning up and I'm going, shit, I gotta get those suitcases. I got (laughs) drugs and I got money. And I'm reaching into this car and I'm pulling out my suitcases Mm. and I bury them in the backyard and the police show up and everybody shows up and it's like, oh my God. Like, I don't know. I don't know how this happened. And and Mm. my parents freaked out. Everybody freaked out. But I saved, the, I saved the money and the drugs. <laughs> and I got my friend of mine to drive his Volkswagen. <laughs> and I thought, we got to get out of here. I was gonna say, I got, going to like, say, we got the money, we got the drugs. And we me. got
0: an insurance replacement car. Yeah. So things were actually I said, up. we got
1: to get. No I, well, no, I knew these people were trying to kill, kill me. Kill me, yeah. I said, this, ain't, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. So I got my friend. I convinced him. I guess I gave him enough drugs and money. <laughs> and we drove to, uh, to California. And back then it was interesting because I went out to California didn't know where we were going, just went just yeah, eventually we got there, went through Mexico and did the whole trip across the country and we got to uh, Topanga Canyon, mm. which is outside of Malibu mm. and we went there and, we, and there was this big cafe in the mountain this is in the hills mm. in these canyons and we're in there and all these musicians were hanging around and all these crazy people were hanging out and getting high and I didn't know who they were at the time. Sure. Eventually, I found out who they were. It was uh, the group Spirit, which was a big rock group. crosby Stills, and Nash <laughs> were living there. And another gentleman named Charles Manson. <laughs> this is where his spawn ranch was. Got it. Okay. So He was hanging out because if you mm-hmm. ever see, read about Manson or see mm-hmm. his movie, they go to this Topanga Canyon... Play for him to play music because mm-hmm. that was his big thing. Yeah. So here we were hanging out there every night. Had no idea that these people who they were at that time. Oh my god! Figured it out later. As, and we were hanging out there, and eventually uh, called my parents, uh, let them know where I was, and they said, "You know, the FBI is looking for you because you jump, jump bail, bail, and you jump probation. You left on probation. You broke every." They said, "If you don't get back here in seventy-two hours." You're like going to be on the FBI list. Yeah. Oh shit. Yeah, that scared the hell out of me. How right? the hell do you get back? And so now we're driving actually? home. We're from California, like in three days. Oh my god.
0: <laughs> How long did it take you to get there in the first? Oh one? my god, weeks. Weeks. Yeah. Yeah, shit.
1: it was like the big trip, your big trip of your young life. Sure. So we came back, and you know, I went back to court and said, i again." My parents pay for everything, and then they sold the house, and so I just went through this. This was my life, you know, hustling and. Getting in trouble and ended up, finally, I overdosed one night. And when I woke up, I was in uh, Springfield State Hospital, Mm -hmm. locked in a padded room. Because they didn't have really good treatment centers back then. Springfield, Virginia? No, in uh, Carroll County. Okay. It was Springfield State Hospital in Maryland. And uh, this was probably 1971, something like that. So a few years after high school, yeah, okay, and and uh, I went in there and literally, they was a padded room mm-hmm. and you wait with a spoon because they wanted to kill yourself. Yep. and you know I was there for like five weeks, and after a couple of weeks, you know you you go through your withdrawal, whatever you went through. And they didn't give you anything, mm-hmm. and and all you do is play cards and mm-hmm. and then at some point I realized that I was kind of like getting into it. I was like, getting money from all the other people because I, I was, you know, I was a hustler and I'm, <laughs> I'm playing all these mental people cards and taking their money and at that point I realized, well, I gotta get out of here I, yeah. said, I, might, I, I might really go crazy <laughs> and so eventually I got out and it was the first time since I was like probably 13 that I hadn't had any drugs in my system mm-hmm. and I said, okay I'm gonna stay straight, I'm gonna you know, got home and within three hours I was getting high again it didn't last very long and it just continued again, another run of going crazy. And finally, I wrecked a car and uh, had a big accident and came home and, you know, left the scene and came home. And my parents were sitting in their living room with my license plate <laughs> saying, did you forget something tonight? You left your license plate at that accident you left and the police want, want you now. And so here's another case. And it just got, it was just crazy. And my dad finally like freaked out. I thought he was going to kill me at that point. And he was, my father was a professional drummer. Okay. And knew a lot of heroin addicts from playing drums. Sure. I knew one guy who went to this program in California Mm. called Synanon. Okay. And he went out and he knew about it. He says, look, I'm sending you out to this place that so-and-so went, who got well, and, you know, we're going to send you out. And uh, I said, California, where? Santa Monica, Santa Monica, on the beach. Oh, oh, sure, pretty good to so, me. Yeah, sounds Meanwhile, great, I man. got a beard, I got long hair, and, you know. So I head it was out.
0: It's like I'll blend in. I head
1: out to LA, and I'm eating Quaaludes and drinking on the plane, and <laughs> I'm getting drunk. And I get off the plane, and I'm stumbling around LA on the, the airport. Cops pick me up, ready to take me in, you know, to arrest me for you know, being high and crazy. Uh. And I kept mumbling the Synanon. And the cops, believe it or not, said, you know, they took me and they stuck me in a taxi cab. And they took money out of my wallet and told the cabbie, dump them at Synanon. <laughs>
0: oh, my <laughs> this God. This is the treatment.
1: center. said, dump them. We don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And they dumped me at Cynadon and, and He was like, if
0: I throw him in my car, we're gonna have to file a report. Screw it, put him in a cab. <laughs>
1: yeah. And they right, exactly. And they just said yeah. get get it rid room, because I said they, you know, I'm going to Cynadon. Oh yeah, great. Go ahead. Yeah. See you later. He was like, oh, and thank they dumped God. me yeah. and I went into Cynadon and it was it was October first, nineteen seventy-two, <laughs> was when I, you know, went in there. And it was crazy. I walk in and they brought a lot of people in the same day. Mm. That was the day that they would take people in. A lot okay. of New Yorkers. Like first day of the month. Kind of the yeah, same. it was, it was just, like yeah. a lot of New They wanted to create peer groups. So I don't okay. know what this place was. So I walk in. They go, first thing I'm going to do is cut your hair, shave your beard. And I said, get out of here. Mm-hmm. Screw you. And I left. Walked up down the beach. <laughs> and some Jewish guy, who was there. knew I was Jewish. Came running down and said, what are you doing, man? It's just hair. It'll grow back. It's just your image. And... You know, come on, it's a good place. I said, "Ah, what the hell?" Mm-hmm. And I went in and they shaved my head and cut my hair and shaved my beard. And when they cut my beard, a root fell out. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, and that was really my last pill. Oh, and I went into this program, and it's a very, uh, it was a very intensive program, very mm-hmm. radical, uh, very popular on the West Coast back then. A lot mm-hmm. of celebrities went there, and. Uh, but it was real hardcore, mm. really hard. And they really put you through like a boot camp and all that. And I went in. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what what it was. But when I went in October 1st, 1972, mm. that was it. I never used drugs again. Oh, okay. Something worked. Something worked at this program. It was very confrontational. I was about to ask. Very yeah. much accountability and was very radical. Uh, and so I went in there and I... I just did really well. I got into it. I would move my way up the ladder of this place, mm-hmm. and this was, in, you know, this is California back in the seventies, and mm-hmm. it was uh, kind of a hippie-ish kind of a thing, and and so it had a charismatic leader, mm-hmm. that that you know that kind of deal. And so I stayed there, and I got good, you know, and you work there, and you stay, and there was no time limit. You could, it was a You're, lifestyle. Yeah. It was a lifestyle. And the way the founder, the, the guru had it, he said, like, stay here forever. Mm-hmm. This is the way you can live your life. Mm-hmm. No and truck. what was this guy's name? Uh, Chuck Diederich. Chuck Diederich. That's his okay. name in Synanon. And so I stayed there and I worked and I was in charge of new people coming in. I got a job, got a girlfriend. I mean, it was a whole life. We lived a very wealthy life there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and more and more addicts were coming in. And it was getting bigger and bigger, and we had facilities all up and down the coast in San Francisco, Marin County. Now, when you when you said that it was a wealthy
0: life in there, like can you can you explain that? Like, what do you what do you
1: what do you? Mean well, here's that? what they did. This is such a, this founder was a genius when it came to this. But he took the addicts and he turned the addicts into a sales team, and he created a product, the pens bags with your name on it mm-hmm. right advertising and gift specialties they called it well he realized i got the best salesman in the world drug addicts and he took the addicts, <laughs> and he would send us all over the country selling pens and pencils. and you go in and say oh hello sir at the bank you know you we notice you buy pens and pencils with your name on it my name is mike gimble i'm a recovering addict i'm in synanon you know we don't take any money from the government we're self-sufficient Blah, blah, blah. You have to buy these anyway. We're tax exempt. If you are mm-hmm. buying from us, the money will go to help addicts, blah, blah, blah. You get that. Man, we were the third largest in the country. <laughs> 15 million bucks a year back then. We were the third largest. Then we got into hustling goods and services. We got uh, uh, Hewlett Packard at the time gave us a giant computer for nothing. Oh my God. People would give us, uh, cattle ranchers would give us cows. That we would turn into food. For food, sure. You know, and I mean, we've had teams all, hundreds and hundreds. Oh, my God. And all of a sudden, you know, our lifestyle is getting better and better because we got all these goods. Sure. Uh, we all had motorcycles. We had a beautiful place to live. We had, you know, we had a place on the beach. We had places up in Marin County, ranches. We bought airplanes. We had Greyhound buses that would take people back and forth. To all the, I mean, we were living a hell of a life. Sure. No drugs, no alcohol, no sure. violence, no smoking. I mean, it was a, some kind of a. And like, what was it? Was it sort of a, I mean, I don't want a tainted term today,
0: although it shouldn't be. Was it per se sort of like a commune sort of an arrangement? It was. Where a, like, it was you weren't getting paid a lot was of a, money to do this, no. but it was like you were providing transportation. You were given everything. It, it was
1: a mix between a commune and a cult. Okay. Okay. It was totally. Okay. Because we were being brainwashed. Sure. Because the the leader... Two two
0: very popular living... The the leader kept saying, would say
1: constantly to us, if you do leave, you're probably going to fall in a manhole and use drugs again. That was pounded in us. Mm -hmm. So we were being brainwashed, no question. Mm -hmm. And this founder, uh, this Dietrich guy, started getting crazier and crazier as years went by and started experimenting on us with different social... I don't know, experiment. Experimentation, you know, sure. You know, like we all gave up sugar. And mm-hmm. We all had to exercise. Not, not all bad. Not bad, okay? sure. Like it's just, and then when... That's great advice to <laughs> you know me. And, and then he got into this thing about children where he said, you know, why do you have children? It's selfish. We've got so many kids out there that need us. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, so we're taking a vow. No one in here is going to have any more kids. Okay. Okay. I just hooked up with this woman and, you know, not that we're going to have kids or anything, but he says, okay, every man in here who's 25 and older must get a vasectomy. And I'm like, Mm. okay. You know, because we were brainwashed. Sure. This is for Sinanon. Yeah. We're doing it for the people. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing it for the community. Yeah. Having kids is selfish. We're not going to be selfish. We're going to take it. And I ended up getting a vasectomy when I was 25. Jesus you know, which is absolutely, you know, when I think of it now, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's insane. It's totally think about insane. It, but, you know, but that's the kind of blind being, you know, brainwashed was. Mm-hmm. And he was slowly taking this place and turning it more and more into a religion and mm-hmm. into a cult. And as the years went on, it got even worse because now the outside world was wondering, what are, we, what are they doing there? What's going on in you there, know? Yeah. And they started looking into it, and the founder got all angry, and it was them against us, and stories were written about us, and Time Magazine, and, and what's going on there? And, and um, boy, he just got more and more defensive, and, mm-hmm. and eventually then we got violent. We all started carrying guns. And I had moved up to the ranch up in San Francisco and Marin County, which is north of San Francisco. Was that sort of the headquarters? Yeah, that's where he was, was and and that was you know the ranch and home base. Yeah, yeah. and people would come on our property, and we would not let them leave. And we were—I mean—we were super paranoid, and it got crazy. I mean, absolutely crazy. And finally, there was a lawyer that sued Synanon, and the founder got a group together and said. You know, I want you to do something to this guy. And they went and they put a rattlesnake in his mailbox. Mm. Now I say this because people could look, look up synonym, and it became a national story. What happened to this, this guy, he didn't get killed, but he did get bit. And that was the beginning of the end, (laughs) you know, and so he kind of got away with it for a while and then the founder said, we're going to do more stuff, mm. you know. And the next thing he did was he basically said, talked about relationships, basically saying you could make a relationship with anybody if you love, if you, if you show how to court someone and you do the nice. So he made an announcement, all marriages, all relationships are over, Done. Go find on. another partner and we're <laughs> going to do this as an end. You know. And I was like, what? You know, and I, I. Just got married when I was in there. Oh, okay. Oh, Not by nice. choice either. It was a girl who was a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. We were just friends. And the founder said, Oh, the two of you are good for Synanon. You should be married. Okay. You know, we didn't want to be married. We we're just friends. Sure. So we got. So he this was like a weekend where everyone's getting a new partner. Now some people liked it. So, you know, sure. Some, some people enjoyed that. Sure. You know. I had trouble fully with.
0: embracing their primate dna yeah like they're exactly all about, yeah, yeah, sure. exactly
1: yeah. I, I had trouble with it actually and so i was like a resistor mm. to the they called it changing partners mm. and i became like a resistor and i was getting a lot of heat
0: I'm sure. from the
1: founder and everybody else like hey you're a role model here why don't you got to do what we do why aren't you doing it i said i don't know i said my parents my values about marriage were very strong. My parents ended up being married 73 years. Wow. So, I mean, marriage was, you know, something in, embedded in me and I had trouble. And so, it got to be really stressful. And so, I finally said, after seven and a half years in this place, I said, I think I'm going to leave. And so, when you say you're going to leave in a cult,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you become the freaking enemy. Mm-hmm. And here i was you know my had a motor, like i said i had motors but it all belonged to synonym sure but still next thing i know man they put me in the back of a pickup truck mm. with nothing not a penny not a stitch of clothes mm. and they stick me in the back of a pickup truck and they dumped me on the streets in san francisco luckily they didn't beat the crap out of me
0: i was gonna say yeah yeah you know,
1: but i had enough goodwill and you know, I was a high enough position. And just to get out. Just yeah. get out and leave in the middle of the night and be quiet and go. Yeah. And I, here I was in the middle of San Francisco, and I didn't know, I didn't know that a lot of the, my friends who had also left over the years had started their own little support network, and they would help each other find jobs. And mm. I didn't know that existed. Oh, okay, sure, I know. Here I am. In, here I am, this little Jewish kid in the middle of San Francisco. <laughs> so what does a little Jewish boy yeah, do?
0: Laying there with no shirt and whatever. Yeah, I, what, I am mean, I mean?
1: what am I doing? I didn't know what to do. I was scared to death, really, because sure. I'd been protected all these years. What, does, you know, what do you do? Call mommy and daddy. <laughs> Jesus. Ugh. So I call mommy and daddy. And, and I'd been in touch with them over the years. Sure, they yeah. came out to visit once to this place. even mm-hmm. and they, they were just glad I wasn't home. And so I said, "I was going to
0: ask, like, what was their impression of the group? The they thought group? it was
1: fun. They didn't know what was going. They're right? like most he's, people. He's not know.
0: doing drugs right now. He's not asking for money
1: right now. Right. And and, so, and we and we, and we actually be. got some money in the bank, and we got ourselves moving again in the right direction. Yeah. So I called him and told him what happened, and they said okay, and they got me a plane ticket, and I came back to Baltimore. Mm. This is bald head, earring. You know, I was like." a real California nutcase. I came back here. And then the woman who I was, you know, kind of married to, we never really, while it was a legal marriage, we never considered it a marriage. Yeah. She called and said, I want to leave too. I said, okay, we'll send you a ticket. Come on, (laughs) come here and hang out here. Yeah. And she came. And so we, we, again, we were like roommates and, and tried to help each other get started back. But my family was just amazing. They were so supportive. And, Helped us get started again. Mm. And so I didn't know what to do. She was a chef. Top chef. So she had? She she, had a trade. Yeah. All I knew was helping people. Yeah. You you knew sales and you you knew, yeah. I knew how to help people. I took people in, but we weren't officially counselors. Sure. I didn't know. And so when I got here, I found a program in the middle of Baltimore City Mm -hmm. called XL, which was a Synanon knockoff. They wanted to be like Synanon. And there are millions of programs around the country that were like like, like big pro like Phoenix House in New York mm-hmm. and there were programs all over the country that were started by ex synanon members. Okay. Because synonym was the, the 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 gold standard sure. of therapeutic communities. Yeah,
0: addiction where, to, where sure, they where yeah. they stayed
1: for a long time. And so I went to this XL and I said, I just left Synanon. And they were they were bowing at my feet really, like you're Moses and you went up to the, you talked to God, you know, what was it like? And I mean, they had like, do you really want and, to know? And they you? started a program called Excel in the middle of Baltimore City mm. and they tried to run it like Synanon. Mm. Well, here I was, I just came there. Yep. So immediately I got a, a job working a night shift mm. <laughs> as a counselor for $7,000 a year. Mm. This was in, I guess, 79 by the time I got into 79 when i got back mm. and i you know i didn't know i was just working sure. thank god i was getting pay a paycheck it's a job sure. it was a job and we got a little apartment and eventually uh we got official divorce and she went back to detroit where she was from okay and so at the same time i started helping some parents in randallstown start a youth program okay called first step and i was working with them on starting it and then we got it open And I started working there as a counselor. So here I was going back to Milford Mill, back to Old Court, telling my story of just eight or nine years ago of what I was like. And I went to the local newspaper and I said, I'm going to tell you my story, Mm -hmm. which is unheard of back then. Yeah. I mean, you don't tell your story. Especially not that kind of a story. Right. I mean, my God. And it made the front page of this local little paper in Randallstown. And so... We started this program and I got uh, appointed to the county, Baltimore County Drug and Alcohol Advisory Council. Okay. Nice thing, you know. Yeah. People started to know who I was and I was a recovering guy trying to help and I got put on that. And at the same time in 1980, the county wanted to create a position called a drug abuse coordinator okay. Okay, for Baltimore County to help coordinate the programs and... And someone said to me, are you going to apply? You'd be perfect. I said, I just barely got out of high school. I just, yeah. You know, I'm not, I don't have the, the requirement. Yeah, it's
0: like four years of high school, seven and, years in a college And this woman
1: who was a police captain in the county police said, you should apply. And so I did. And I got down to uh, the final three people. One was me and the other two were two PhD doctor types. Mm. And I said, this is silly. You're screwed. Yeah. The county executive was Donald Hutchinson. Who just took over as county executive in 1980 Mm -hmm. and he interviewed each of us and went in and and, uh, he started telling me how his brother was an alcoholic and blah, blah, blah. And I was telling him what I want to do and what I can do and my story. And he says, you know what? You got the job. I was like, why are you kidding me? This is like unheard of. Yeah. And so what they had to do was a background check. Huh. And so next thing I know, <laughs> the FBI, the county police, everybody's there, talking to my neighbors, anybody that <laughs> wanted to make sure that I was okay. Yeah. And this county executive, that was a ballsy thing to do. Sure. He's going to hire some criminal. Yeah, he's going to hire To this high-level position mm-hmm. that reported directly to him, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, what a chance. You know, yeah, I could exactly be sure. a total nutcase. Yeah. Nut but he took the chance, and he said this. Yeah, he, he said, if you help one person, you earn your salary. I mean, he was amazing. Yeah. And so he hired me, and I started, and I had a $50,000 grant, and that was for my salary and a secretary. And then I started creating what this job was because it never it was never here before. Yeah. And I just started building it and writing grants and going out and talking friend of mine to just go out and talk, mm. talk to the media, tell your story. And I would, I mean, literally seven days a week, I'd go out, talk to Boy Scouts, you know, talk to schools, mm. talk to any Kiwanis Club, anybody that would listen mm. and tell them my story. And, and at the same time, try to build up the county with programs and education and treatment. Mm. And, and so we, I started getting labeled, the drugs are, mm. And so that stuck. And so Baltimore County in 1980, we were the first probably county in the country to hire a drug czar, which now we have a drug czar in the White House. Now it's a thing. Yeah, Yeah, now it's a thing. We were the first ones to do it. Hey, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the show. I'm really loving this conversation with Mike Gimbel. I hope you really are as well. Obviously, in this episode, we got into a lot about his past and how he sort of found his way to where he was. And next week's episode, where we conclude the conversation that we have with Mike, is where we get into the work that he's been doing since then, where we sort of pick up where we left off here. I'm really hoping that you stick with it. This is a really great interview, and I can't wait to get it out. Don't forget to go into whatever app you're listening to the show on and subscribe so that you go ahead and get that show when it comes out next week automatically.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the show. You've got this.